I think we do not understand what Russia, and I mean that to be bigger than just Putin, but what does Russia really want? What really scares them? What is their, you know, security index? How do they define threats? Like, I think we've lost, certainly in the arms control and nuclear spaces and many of the most critical from a mutually assured destruction point of view, we've closed explicitly those channels for good purpose, but we've, as a result, lost a lot of the understanding. And I just think you can't find yourself to resolution if you don't understand whether it's an adversary or a partner, what their views are. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I am here today with Dr. Wendon Smith. And this is episode 110. And man, that I enjoy talking to Wendon. Talk about an interesting person. Talk about a good person. Talk about somebody truly dedicated to accomplishing great things and has pushed herself and has challenged herself and has had this kind of gigantic impact. And I want to start my introduction just by reading something that she said in an interview that I think is really interesting. As a young science geek in Michigan, she says, I saw an article in National Geographic about how the Soviet Union, that's what it was called then, the Soviet Union was polluting Lake Baikal, the largest freshwater lake in the world by volume. With the Great Lakes in our backyard, that article really stuck with me. And so my mission growing up, imagine that, my mission growing up was that I was going to save Lake Baikal from the Soviets. I studied both biology and Russian in college, eventually ended up studying in the then Soviet Union. While living there, I realized that many of the problems that I was trying to deal with were actually from the military industrial complex. And so when I came back, I did my master's and my PhD in security studies, which quickly led to a career in the weapons of mass destruction space. Man, oh man, can you imagine? She is just so interesting. But here's someone who was just a kid, reads about this in National Geographic and says, I want to fix this problem. You know, I often talk about entrepreneurs. And what I love about entrepreneurs is they see a problem. And rather than just complain about it, they try to solve it. Well, I have to expand my definition here or my context, because not just entrepreneurs that see a problem and don't just complain about it, but try to do something about it. There are leaders in many, many fields and scientists and academics and others. And Wendon Smith is a great example. Saw a problem, wanted to try to solve it and actually stuck with it for a long, long time. And because of the way life works, discovered that, in fact, it wasn't just pollution, quote unquote, that was creating this problem. Where was it coming from? What was the underlying source? And that led her towards wanting to understand military matters as well. The other thing to point out, maybe it's kind of obvious, is there are actually not a lot of women in the field of trying to study and manage and control weapons of mass destruction. There are not a lot of women. And so she's had to be and still is a trailblazer. And when I asked her, what are weapons of mass destruction? Well, nuclear, yeah, chemical, biological, and even cyber. So unfortunately, this happens to be a growth business given our uh, modern world. And it's great to have these types of thinkers that are trying to figure it out, trying to deal with it, trying to make the world safer. And so who is this person? How does she do that? How did she stick with it? And that's interesting to talk to her. And we'll get to know Wendon Smith and a little bit about her background and who she is and how she thinks. And we're also going to get some interesting insight about President Putin, about cybercrime, and about a lot of other issues related to Russia and actually to China as well and global geopolitics. Something that I haven't actually talked about a great deal in the past, but given its importance and given the fact that here's a woman that has dedicated her life to trying to figure this out and do everything she can to control these weapons of mass destruction, understand them, that's an opportunity that's really important to bring in. She's currently a managing director with Deloitte Consulting, where she leads the firm's countering weapons of mass destruction practice, and she supports clients across the federal government. She's had the honor of serving as a senior advisor to the commanding general of the U.S. Special Ops Command. She served as an advisor to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. She was responsible for establishing policy and guidance to protect U.S. and allied forces against chemical and biological, radiological, nuclear attacks from state or terrorist actors, and to help think about and prevent and counter 
global trafficking and WMD and weapons of mass destruction. So she's worked at the highest levels in the federal government. She's worked at the highest levels in think tanks, which is really what she does now, working for the federal government as part of Deloitte's practice. And she's worked on her own as well in creating her own business, in trying to address the same types of issues. She's a graduate of Dartmouth College and has really a role model for many young women in science, actually for all of us. And anytime you meet someone that has kind of the mega geek credentials and has the track record of actually walking the talk, and then you discover she's the nicest person, so engaging and interesting and kind at the same time that you see this kind of steel core of someone that has to have that to be successful playing at this high level. It's fascinating. It's great to see it. And we're going to have a great discussion. We're going to let you into a little bit of the world of Wyndon Smith, a little bit of the world of what she sees and what she's learning and what we can think about as educated citizens, but also as people who want to understand who are these people that are changing the world for the better? How are they doing it? Why are they doing it? And Wyndon Smith, Dr. Wyndon Smith, PhD, is one such person. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I am here today with Wyndon Smith. Hi, Wyndon. Hi, Sid. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. And where are you now as we speak? I am physically in beautiful northern Michigan, but I won't say where because that'll give it away to others and we try and keep (laughs) a great secret. (laughs) Yeah, well, I know Michigan's got a lot of spots, especially in warmer weather. It's pretty spectacular. I have to ask you about your name. So I'm pronouncing it Wendin, which is how it sounds, W-E-N-D-I-N, but it is unusual. So what's the story? It is. And there is a story, although it may not be as fun as you may hope. But my (laughs) parents, now both retired, were English teachers primarily. They taught a number of subjects in their careers. But their story is enthralled with Arthurian legends and wanted also to have a creative name. So they started with Guinevere and went through some adaptations from there and ended up with Wendon. Wow. The crazy part yeah. is that my brother is Brad, and that's okay. <laughs> I was going to ask you that uh, about yeah. your siblings, if they also had original names. Uh, no, and yeah. how many times have you been called Wendy, for example? Very many. In yes. fact, most will assume Wendy, or the other scenario more common is that most folks assume Wendon in a virtual world that Wendon is a male name. So I usually right. receive a Mr. Wendon Smith, et cetera. Yeah. So, okay, the name Sydney has become much more of a female name than a male yes. name in the last, I don't know, 25 years. But that's not me. And so I do occasionally get a note, and it's often from a student, who might want to do some research, and they would say Ms. Finkelstein, for example. Yes. And I'm thinking, you know, if you want to do research with me, the first thing one would think is, you at least Google this person and see what he or she looks like or what they call themselves or what have you. So you actually get that too. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. So let's start with how in the world you got interested in what you do for a living. Weapons of mass destruction, global security, this is not a run-of-the-mill career track. How'd you get into this? Yeah, it's a fun story. I'll give you the slightly longer version and you can pull it apart as you choose. But as I mentioned, I'm in Michigan now, which is where I was born and raised in a northern part of the lower peninsula, was a big fan, grew up on the lakes in, under, above, in any form of water given our beautiful lakes here. And as a child, also loved National Geographic. It was probably was and still is one of my favorite publications. And so it will date me, but in the 80s, as a younger child, there was a fantastic spread on a lake called Lake Baikal that's in the far east of Russia. It holds about a fifth of our liquid fresh water And it's just a huge, enormous lake. In fact, if you tipped all of our Great Lakes into it, it would not fill up that single lake. Wow. Yeah. Huge, (laughs) beautiful, endemic species. You should look it up. And so anyway, the National Geographic did a spread on how at that time the Soviets were using it essentially as a convenient geographic toilet bowl and dumping all sorts of waste into it and destroying the endemic environment. So as a child, I determined that I was going to go save this lake from the Soviets. So wow. I became a Russian <laughs> major and a biology minor, you know, changed those a couple of times during the path. But mm-hmm. ultimately, that was the path that took me to Russia And then the story continues from there, but I'll at least pause for you for a moment. So that's really interesting that you had this, I mean, how old were you when you decided this is going to be? Well, see, now you're going to date me, right? (laughs) I think I I was (laughs) like seven or eight when the article came out. Yeah. And you stuck with it really for a long time. That's fantastic. And I guess when you pollute a lake, especially a lake of that size and magnitude and importance to the planet, it is a form of mass destruction. It's not that far of a leap. 
So that's why you studied Russian, because you were going to go there and you were going to fix this. Yes, I was going to go save this lake. That was my mission. Mm, that's fantastic. And so what did your parents tell you about that? They, <laughs> they thought, okay, go ahead, little Wendon. You know, right. you can do it. Yes, well, <laughs> if they were on the podcast with me, they would say that I was a very determined child from the start. There was no say as to whether they were going to you know, stop me, <laughs> but they were certainly going to enable it. But I do think it did surprise everyone how much it did stay with me through my even right. early teenage years where most things yeah. change pretty regularly. The bigger surprise probably was when I was studying Russian in college and had the opportunity mm. to spend a junior year abroad, ended up going right after the coup, which, as you'll recall, was just an incredibly you know, disruptive, scary time. So my poor parents had their daughter jetting off to Moscow right after a coup where the future was very much unknown and there were no cell phones, no email, mm. you know, really no ability. I was literally sending some telegrams back and forth wow. to tell them I was okay. Telegrams. A lot of people don't have a clue what yes. a telegram is. <laughs> it's kind of like a text that takes a while to get there or something like this. I don't even know. It uh, does. So and where you, you wait in line for seven hours at the Central Telegraph location oh. to actually send one. So, yeah. I imagine there weren't a ton of Westerners around at that point. No, there weren't. There were, to be fair, a pretty international city in Moscow. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of exchanges for students and technical exchanges with Zimbabwe and other countries, but not Western and certainly not Americans, particularly at that time, you know, post-coup, end of Cold War. So you were a college student and you were studying Russian and other topics related, maybe biology still, and all this was going on around you. Were you afraid? So I was never afraid. So when I first arrived, I was in a dormitory and very much on our own, but rapidly was able to move in with a host family in Moscow, which was also really, they were probably afraid, honestly, because hosting an American at that point was a bit problematic. But because of that, I felt, I think, a sense of home. And I rapidly became familiar enough with just the streets and the systems and so on that I never felt targeted or afraid. I think I did feel very removed is probably the word I would use just because of that lack of communication, really no way to communicate whatsoever. And so you, feeling you removed. You mean communicate back home? Back home, yeah. Because so you no, were speaking Russian there, yeah. at least as reasonably fluent at that stage or enough to get by for sure. Enough to get by. I certainly wasn't fluent. <laughs> My host family would affirm that when I arrived. <laughs> by the time I left, I could express myself pretty well. But when I first arrived, I could understand most conversations, but not contribute much more than what felt like a kindergartner level. So is Russian a hard language to learn? It is. I mean, even just, you know, scientifically by our Defense Department or others, it's ranked as one of the harder languages yeah. due to the complexity of the case structure. It also has the complexity of gender, which some languages have and many other, you know, nuances. But there are some certainly harder. I think Japanese ranks it and Chinese as well, but it's tough. And you also speak German? I do. My German's conversational at best. Mm -hmm. It's funny you say that. I was actually conversing with a German-speaking national this morning by chance who I bumped into, uh -huh. but she asked me where I learned German, and that's actually part of the story. I learned German in Moscow, which I got to tell her in German. So I apparently have a slight Russian accent when I speak German. That's interesting. But you weren't studying German when you were there at college, though, were you? Not in college. I studied it, you're correct, later when I went back to work, had the opportunity to take some classes. Yeah. So what was it like on the streets, you know, when... Uh, so actually, why don't you kind of remind our listeners what was going on politically at that time and sure. what you described as a coup? Yeah. So as the listeners will recall, you know, sort of through the end of the late 80s, there had been a lot of changes in the leadership of the Communist Party at the time. And in the 91 timeframe, the transition went from being the Soviet Union under Gorbachev to then Russia as the Russian Federation led by then President Yeltsin. And you had the fragmentation of the Soviet Union into its disparate parts. So as I arrived, there had just been a coup in that August of 1991 to challenge Gorbachev's authority. And essentially, you know, sort of the harder communist side of the regime was fighting hard to not let that dissolution happen. So really interesting time. The good side, you know, I would say, and what many will recall is that was the birth of democracy or the attempt at democracy for Russia. So a lot of really high energy on the streets, certainly in the bigger cities in Moscow where I was, coupled with, though, a lot of confusion across that enormous country. You know, your listeners will know it's, I think, nine time zones. It's just a huge expanse. So no one can talk about Russia as a monolith, for sure. Yeah. And I had a guest on the Sidcast who was in Germany when the Berlin Wall mm. came down. 
And he described also there's a lot of, well, that was even, I mean, that was an extremely joyous time yes. for so many uh, people, but a lot of uncertainty as well. When you were in Russia, did you travel across some of these times? Did you travel around the country? I did. I had the opportunity to travel a fair amount. As a student, I was able to travel to some of the former then newly independent republics of Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, a few others. And then as I stayed to work there, traveled throughout, I would say, Western Russia and parts of Eastern Russia, and then much of the adjoining Moldova, Belarus, Azerbaijan, Armenia, etc. of the satellite states. So significant travel, most of that by train, just because flights were actually pretty hard to find or depend on at the time, and the trains were fabulous. So a lot of yeah. opportunity as you, you know, the nostalgia, you can imagine just the opportunity to travel across that countryside in real time is really yeah. powerful. So there are some parts of the former Soviet Union that are known for being extremely independent and have rejoiced in their independence. And mm. you, know, you think about Latvia and Lithuania, mm-hmm. Poland, to be sure, mm-hmm. although Poland wasn't Soviet Union. But what did you find as you travel around when you interact with everyday people, especially yeah. during that time? Yeah, so many powerful memories. It's fun to actually go back and relive a bit of that. It did depend deeply on where, as you're saying, like the Baltics of Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, very different feel. And I was actually in one of those also right after the coup versus Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, which had a different feel. But I would say generally, there were two extremes. There was the absolute rejoicing, as you were saying, you know, maybe following the Berlin Wall's fall, freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom mm-hmm. of commerce, of food, <laughs> things that, <laughs> that they just never had before. But really strongly coupled with, and I would say partly, you know, those that I was closer with in Moscow, also to use your question, you know, fear or scared, that certainly was part of the vocabulary. What did that mean for their mm-hmm. futures, their families, a system built on a very different premise than changing around them? And so particularly for anyone kind of 40 plus, I would say it was a really challenging, scary time. Yeah. So you went back to finish university mm-hmm. after that. Indeed. And at what stage did you shift your career goal from saving the lake to some other so type was- of saving? It was during my time in Moscow, I realized that so many of the environmental, there were you know significant environmental challenges in the Soviet mm-hmm. Union broadly at that time, but that so many of them were related to the military industrial complex. And again, coming off of the Cold War, we, the United States, are not innocent in any way of having the same challenge, but so much of our nuclear in particular, but chemical and biological complexes were built around this massive complex And so much waste came from that. So it was while there that I think I really became very aware of it and traveling, seeing some of these complexes made me even more aware. So when I returned following undergraduate work and some time living and working there, determined that I really wanted to focus on this weapons of mass destruction, military industrial complex. So that was my focus then in graduate school security studies, environmental policy. So I combined the security studies field with the environmental field, which at the time was a little unique. Certainly, mm-hmm. I think the missileers thought I was a tree hugger and the tree hugger thought mm-hmm. I was a missileer. So that's very <laughs> the challenge. Yeah. And so you got your PhD. What happens after that? Is the path an academic one for many people that work for the government or in a think tank? What's common at that stage? So certainly most common would be, and my you know mentors at the time, I think, imagined that I would be on an academic path. That's why most people rightly do their PhDs. Yep. I knew, though, that I didn't want to be, my whole career at least, I wanted in segments, but my whole career mm. to be in just, I mean, not that there's not great value in that, but in just writing and analyzing. I really wanted to be applying, operationalizing taking action against, you know, some of the things I was learning. So I knew coming out of my PhD that I wanted to go work for the government in some way. The path that became the most attractive at that point was actually to go into the consulting world where I could advise the government as an outside contractor and then ultimately, you know, came into government and worked with the government along the way as well. Yeah, so it's actually quite interesting to think about this kind of back and forth and connection between the consulting industry and the government. Most people probably know about that in business setting. Many, many Mm -hmm. companies are hiring, you know, the McKinsey's and and the Deloitte's and the Bain's and everyone else. But for the government as well, that's interesting. And you 
because you're at Deloitte, obviously, now, and then you had your role earlier. But you also, somewhere along the way, even started a consultancy or two. That's right. <laughs> is that much later or is that... You've got the flow correct. So initially, when I finished the PhD, I spent about eight years working in programs that were designed to... In fact, many of the listeners probably will know it. It's the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program that Senators Nunn and Luger back in 91, essentially passed into legislation to cooperatively, and it's really important that cooperative part with Russia and the former Soviet states dismantle their weapons complexes. So not at all anything that was hidden. We were openly bringing our numbers down, you know, reducing our bombers, missiles, submarines, etc. So the easy step at that point, given my Russian skills and knowledge of the former Soviet states was to go and support those cooperative programs. So I did that for about eight years and learned as a consultant then how to run a consultancy in addition to doing that Mm -hmm. really exciting work. So that's when I launched into my own consultancy and kicked off my first woman-owned business. I won't bore you all with the details (laughs) of why having a woman-owned small business is wonderful and a challenge, but it's a great opportunity. Well, are there actually a lot of women doing the types of work that you did, the type of advisory work that you did? I can't imagine. uh, No, certainly not. And candidly, that's certainly part of the reason for success is that there is a demand from government that's congressionally mandated, essentially, to dedicate a certain amount of the consulting work to small businesses. And then within that small business segment, to woman-owned or service-disabled-owned. There's different categories. So I was able to really fill a niche as a woman-owned small business with skills that were unique. Why did you not keep going down that path as an independent consultant? It's really hard. (laughs) (laughs) There's the answer. (laughs) It's exhausting. No, I mean, it is exhausting, but that's never deterred me. The bigger answer, honestly, is I just, I love teams. Mm -hmm. I love to lead a team, support a team, develop a team, envision a team. There's so much joy that comes Mm -hmm. to me in that. And while I certainly had teams that I would build for the businesses that we were running and team with other companies to go deliver work, it's not quite the same as when it's your Mm -hmm. own team. Yeah. And I'm curious also about, so you worked for eight years and it led to a pretty well-known treaty and reduction of weaponry. What did you actually do? Kind of like, what specifically mm-hmm. would it be analytical work? Can you give us an example of a sure. bundle yeah. of projects? So I'll actually go into the biological space because I think that's maybe a little bit less explored than the nuclear space. Mm-hmm. So an example would be There's actually a significant number of facilities and some larger and some smaller in both Russia, but also Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan in particular, most of the other former Soviet states that were built around developing biological weapons. Until 1972, there were actually no treaties related to controlling biological Mm -hmm. weapons. After 1972, we and many other countries signed an agreement to eliminate all of our weapons. It turned out, back to our 1990s story, that in fact, President Yeltsin divulged that in fact, Russia had not stopped all of its biological weapons production. And in countries where they had stopped, they still had complexes that needed to be safely dismantled so that no further production could happen. So what my job would be would be to manage the program where essentially Russia or Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan would declare these sites and these facilities for joint destruction, dismantlement, or mm-hmm. you know redirection. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that is actually the scientific knowledge, the know-how of those very capable scientists who were involved in those programs. So we, mm-hmm. as the United States and other teams, there's a global G8 component as well, would go in and essentially manage all aspects of the construction or dismantlement the scientific redirection, uh, mm-hmm. all of the so bioethics training. You, yep. You and others were there on the ground and you could observe and actually be involved in the destruction of Indeed. these uh, factories and materials. What about the know-how? And this actually comes up when we think about the nuclear negotiations with Iran. You could tear down all sorts of things, but then there's kind of the intellectual property that has been figured right. out. And I imagine that that doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. And that's kept, and maybe there's even more research. How do you deal with that? And if you have a bad actor out there that wants to kind of just produce all kinds of dangerous Mm -hmm. weapons, is it a long timeline to be able to go from zero to something if they know how to do it? Right. So to a professor, I'll say, that's a whole seminar, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a fascinating realm. If there's one area that most draws me, you, you probably hit it. Because I think, you know, you can immediately break that into two categories. There's the category of sort of coercion. And I think we've seen some of that even with Al Qaeda and some of the terrorist actors where if 
take Taliban, et cetera, they go into an area, there's a university with effective professors who know how to devise a radiological or biological weapon. Can they coerce that professor who might not want to commit a bad act, but because they have no food or they're going to be thrown into a pit to divulge their knowledge? And then I think on the other side, there's subcategories of it, but there's essentially by choice, where either for pay or because you're not being paid by the government, which was often the case in the situation mm -hmm. we were dealing with, you simply need mm -hmm. to get food on the table or have a life, you know, and a purpose. Mm -hmm. So I think how you do it, it matters, you know, which of those categories the expertise and the know-how falls into. But it is really hard. And it's, I think, going to be an eternal challenge as we continue to see, despite many programs in the government and not just ours, but other governments, really, it's a big challenge. Yeah. So the truth is, when we do make these treaties, and they're great, but they only can go to a certain point. And really, one of these countries wants to accelerate. They could. Yeah. And again, the material in the sense of is it chemical, biological, radiological or nuclear really does matter, because I would argue in some cases more in the radiological or nuclear space, getting the material is the most important part. And you can do some pretty bad things just with the material, where for chemical and biological, you kind of have to know a little bit more of how to manage it, how to distribute it, disperse it in a way that will get your yeah. bad act done. It kind of points out that you actually need genuine good I don't know, goodwill, even between enemies, yeah. for any treaty to have any real value. Trust, uh, but verify. Or any long-lasting value. <laughs> Trust, but verify. But also just, it's not easy to break these things, but certainly there's a capability to do that. Mm. You know, I said goodwill, but that's kind of a simple thing. It's like, you know, there's a penalty to be paid if you mm -hmm. break the rules. And that's maybe where, you know, they have a carrot in the stick going right. on. I think an ethics piece, you know, emerging mm -hmm. there too. And we see that mm -hmm. even with cyber, not that I'm at all a cyber expert, but at what point can there be a norm around what acts you do or don't choose to do as an expert in your yeah. field and the ethics that come with that? So there have been some efforts to look at ethics in space or ethics in cyber, ethics in biology, which are challenging. Yeah. You know, I think about with nuclear weapons, we have mutual assured destruction, which is quite an interesting concept, actually, yes. as terrifying and as fascinating at the mm -hmm. same time. And cyber is a wild west still. Do you see an end game somewhere and would it model itself to what we've seen with nuclear, biological, or chemical weapons mm -hmm. in terms of some kind of steady state treaty? So I don't see an end game. And I say that mostly because in that case, I do believe the technology evolves so much more dynamically and faster mm -hmm. and at scale than most of the threats from nuclear, chem, biological, etc. So I think if in the true meaning of an end game where you can kind of count on it and you're at the end, it's going to move too dynamically, I think, for us to ever call it an end. So even if, you know, now putting on a bit of my policy lens, which I know, you know, I've spent some time there, even if we could rapidly develop a policy and rapid in that space would be, you know, a year or two, which would be extraordinary. By the time we've developed that policy, the technology will have evolved at a pace that that technology may likely not be entirely relevant. Is the pace of that technological change just going to continue? At some point, you think that there's going to be some type of slowing down finally. I mean, maybe yeah. it's a long way from now. I hope. I mean, I do think another part of your question was how might it evolve, maybe absent, you know, an endgame. I do think, and we saw this with the solar winds attack incident, whatever word you want to use, just a month mm -hmm. or so ago here in the East Coast of the United States. Mm -hmm. I think we will see a point where there is an act or an activity that may or may not be perpetrated by a state, might be you know, more likely a non-state actor. But I think it will be that tipping point. We sometimes talk about a nuclear tipping point, but I think there will be a cyber tipping point. And maybe we've seen that in some ways with solar winds and a few of the following acts where I know President Biden has engaged with President Putin perhaps on different terms than have been in the past. And at least for now, from what I'm seeing, and again, entirely open source reporting, there is a pause in some of the activity of some of those actors on the Russian site. Again, not yeah. to suggest that those are Russian state actors, but on the territory of Russia. Right, which sure seemed to come quickly after at least the conversation between Biden and Putin became public. But, you know, I think a lot of people wonder, why are we getting uh, seemingly getting beaten up in this cyber war? You know, we have Silicon Valley. We got some talent. So, of course, the naive view says, well, we're playing defense. I got to believe we're doing stuff elsewhere mm -hmm. also. And maybe the stuff is so advanced that nobody even knows about it or it doesn't get publicized in these other places. 
which is kind of what happens when you have, you know, acceleration of an arms mm-hmm. race. But nonetheless, even if we are doing things elsewhere, it just seems like every day goes by, not seems like, it's a fact, every day goes by and there's some type of hacking, some type of ransom, whether it comes from, you know, Russia or anywhere else, could come from Korea, can come from Pakistan, come from a lot of places. And a lot of people in business certainly are getting worn out. Investors are worried about it. Boards of directors are always talking about cyber issues now. Right. It's really changed. Do you have any insight or thought or suggestion for how to think about this from that point of view? So I'll go kind of to the beginning of your question slash discussion there, yeah. which is, are we all defensive? Is there an element of offense without talking about the offensive side at all? But what I come to is a culture, right, of the United States where we are so trusting generally, although that is shifting. We yes. are all about capitalism and you know the market and driving mm-hmm. forward so our mindset is much more driven to a path that puts us more vulnerable than other places which are much more closed protected less aggressive in all of those areas so i'm not arguing for a shift you know away from our great uh, aggressive culture but it probably means we have to catch up a little bit on the defensive balanced with offensive side and just think about that a little bit more clearly again from a policy point of view. The other thing I will say, and this has certainly been well studied, is you know the difference between authoritarian regimes and our democratic regimes in the ability to enforce, guide, regulate cyber, let alone you know any other mm-hmm. industry. And again, I'm not arguing for a change in how open and free we are, but it is hard for us to regulate in a way that would protect or you know, defend by a strong offense in a country where that's just not built on those policies. Yeah. And, you know, if I think about what type of defense is possible, there's the shield, which applies mm-hmm. to, well, I don't know that there's any shield that protects from nuclear attack, but you know, we see we're what trying. we see about the, mi- the missiles. We're, we're trying, thank goodness, try, yeah. keep trying. Uh, but say in Israel, their Iron Dome, Iron Dome, which has been mm. very effective, at least for the missiles they've been facing so far. Mm-hmm. I don't know what will happen if and when that accelerates. But anyway, so there is that. And then actually, I'm reminded of President Reagan talked about, it was called Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, So there's that. But then there's the policy protection, which is work that you've done, mm-hmm. where there is an agreement to limit certain weapons. Are there any other mechanisms to create a protective environment when it comes to not just cyber, but just more generally? Yeah, so... Where I go with that is, and it does relate to cyber, although it is broader, is the integrative demand that I think comes with many of these emerging challenges, whether cyber or, you know, synthetic biology, which has risks and opportunities that come with it, which is to say, we have to better integrate the information about that promise and that peril. I like to think of them in those two ways between our commercial industry, our government, our international partners. And we don't do that well right now as a nation, I would argue. Most of our activities are very siloed, which makes sense from a management point of view. But if we don't bring together a little bit more integration, so the oil pipeline with our cyber expertise, with our understanding of these threats, and do the appropriate data sharing to allow us to know when a threat is coming and sort of tip and cue that threat or, you know, even better prepare for it so that we're not reactive to it. And certainly, you know, that's a drumbeat in the cyber side is to enable us to be less reactive and more proactive. But with our very segmented, non-authoritarian, again, country, that's harder to do to integrate us and break those silos. So, I mean, that makes sense. You use a certain term just now, synthetic biology. Yes. Or synthetic. synthetic yeah, what biology. is that? So synthetic biology in a nutshell, is the ability to manipulate genomes or genetic code to do something you want to do. Okay. So this is an area that the U.S. government's spending time on Mm -hmm. in terms of defense, because of course, you know, if you think about CRISPR and the gene editing technology has, you know, incredible potential to help you by editing out genes that hurt us, but it could also lead to some type of science fiction thing, creating some type of organism that you can control. I mean, that's kind of weird, but what are you looking at when it comes to synthetic biology that you're thinking of? Yes. So what I mean there is, as with much, I would say in the last probably 30 years, but where back in the 1960s and 70s, I think most would argue that a lot of the cutting edge technology developments were done by the government. So it was internal research agencies Mm -hmm. within the government 
that's now essentially flipped and the commercial sector is the one devising, you know, getting ahead, going fast. And then the government's either taking that technology and adapting it to its national mm -hmm. security needs or just mm -hmm. playing catching up to the risks that ensue. So synthetic biology, I think, is a great example of that, where this convergence of high power computing, biological advances, the ability to understand, you know, our human bodies, et cetera, has enabled Again, promise and peril, but from a promise perspective, it's pretty exciting. From a peril perspective, yes, the ability to essentially craft a biological agent that could be targeted for a particular segment of people, whether that be you know certain color or certain genetic makeup or even a certain person potentially in the future. So wow. pretty scary. And that's coupled with many other technologies, hypersonics, et cetera, where you see this convergence of capabilities with unmanned systems that present entirely new challenges in the national security realm. Listening to what you're saying, it's kind of like endless. It's always <laughs> something new. The ingenuity of science and humans to create mm. amazing things that both, maybe this is, you know, historic. I've been reading a couple of different books about drawing nitrogen from the mm. air, you know, the Haber-Bosch system. And the challenge there was to get fertilizer for agriculture mm -hmm. purposes. And without that, we would not have enough food to feed the world a long time ago. Mm -hmm. uh, we would hit the peak. But of course, that same material allows you to create weapons. Right. And I don't know, this is philosophical, but maybe it seems like that's true in a lot of these other mm -hmm. fields. Certainly, this biology story that we just talked about yeah. can do a lot of great things and a lot of bad things. Absolutely. And I know yeah. your listeners can't see me, but I have mm -hmm. many more white hairs up here than I used to <laughs> for each one of those advances. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's some philosophical point to be made in here. Mm -hmm. Because even nuclear power is a very, I mean, it's very clean power. Mm -hmm. I mean, people are terrified of it Absolutely. in some parts of the world. It's a very clean power, but it could also create. Incredible. Yeah, the dual use is a very common term in the arms yeah. control world. But I fully agree with the sort of philosophy angle you're taking where that dual use used to mean very specific things mm -hmm. about you know, a nuclear component that could be used for a civil nuclear power application or a nuclear weapon. But that expansion of what dual use is or how, again, for a creative mind, those things mm -hmm. can be changed is pretty extraordinary. So given your background and kind of where you start with interest in climate and sustainability and environment, climate change is a global peril right now. And I don't know whether you or people in your team or teams study climate change in the context of the Department of Defense type mm -hmm. of work? And if so, what are you doing and how do you think about this? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think starting in 94, I'll get the year wrong, but there was an initial Office of Environmental Security established yeah. way back. Mm -hmm. It's come and gone over various administrations, but the Department mm -hmm. of Defense specifically does have an energy environmental security focus. What the work is is certainly aimed at readiness, I would say. So it's termed in, like, if you imagine a logistics train for fossil fuels that need to fuel our trucks in a forward operating base, it's much more geared to how do we minimize that logistics train, keep our warriors safe, and make sure we can operate as we need to. But clearly, that's where the renewables and others come in, where if you can operate your truck with a solar panel and therefore have no logistics train for your oil and gas, we not only are more operationally ready but we've also protected the environment through emission reduction. You can, you know, go down the list as far as global warming or climate change now with, you know, water level rising, the effect on many bases, naval bases around the globe. What does that mean for ships, you know, trying to come in and out and dock and service? It's a cascading really question. So I will credit, it's no surprise, and I don't mean to sing the current administration's praises, but for the first time we have a climate czar, Ambassador Kerry and are going to put the energy in at a full U.S. power to think about all those consequences. Yeah, I think most people don't actually think about supply chain very much mm -hmm. <laughs> unless you're in that business. But that is not everything, but it's unbelievably important. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, I think, one of the reasons why the U.S. acquired or took over all kinds of little islands in the Pacific. I think they were originally called or being used for coaling stations because mm. coal was what they used mm -hmm. in ships and solar and the rise of solar might change mm -hmm. that dramatically. You know, you see the old movies of the convoys, especially right. in World War II, the convoys going across the Atlantic, mm. including fueling ships right. for refueling. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't that be something if there's yeah. some alternative uh, methods to well, do Well, and, and to your nuclear point before, I'm sure many of your listeners are also tracking these small modular reactors and SMR that's essentially, you know, a 25 megawatt, maybe city block size or less that can be forward deployed again. 
and not only defense applications, but imagine the Alaskan town that's only accessible by plane and only mm. in certain you know weeks or months of the year, you now have a dependable energy source. But again, that same technology is really very similar to what you would need for a more nefarious act of a nuclear weapon or, or beyond. Right. right. So could we talk a little bit about Russia and Putin today? Certainly top of the news day after day, it seems like. Have you ever met him, by the way? I have not. Face face? No. But you've studied him and yes. you've worked with people that spend a lot of time thinking about him. How would you describe him as a, let's just say, as a leader? I'll say this openly, even on podcast, I feel like I shouldn't answer because I never know when it might come back to bite me. <laughs> so, I don't know if I want to answer that, Sid. <laughs> well, you don't have to if you don't No, want. I'll give you an answer and, and I'll do it in a way that's comfortable. I mean, I do think he is an incredibly patriotic leader, right? He believes in his country and his people and how he demonstrates that, you know, we may not all agree with, but I'll praise that. You know, I'm sure folks are familiar with his background, which all of our backgrounds infuse who we are. So, you know, a career spent in intelligence and in that side of the Soviet system certainly informs, I think, how he manages and directs and leads. Having really been in Russia when he first took over and then observing it more and more from a distance over the decades, I do regret that so much of that energy and the potential of the Russian people and you know that nation has headed in a way that's more closed and less offering opportunities to its people and its neighbors than I would like to see. But yeah. you know, fantastic opportunity. And I do hope, I know there are many who continue to say this, but you know, too often I think in the US we take a leader and lay that over the country and say, you know, this is Russia. Mm-hmm. And back to mm-hmm. my earlier point about just the size and the scale of that great country, a leader doesn't represent everything that's there. Yes, I think that's a great point. And I'm sure a lot of people would have been quick to make that point. Both, actually we would say both about President Trump and President mm-hmm. Biden for that matter, Absolutely. depending on your point of view. One thing that seems to be continuing in Russia, at least, and maybe this gets to the culture and the way you describe the U.S. being aggressive and capitalistic and individualistic, but it seems like in Russia, and there are other countries like that, China, Mm -hmm. for example, actually a lot of other countries, where having a dictator is good, Mm -hmm. is seen as a good thing, Mm -hmm. or at least much more positive than anyone would say that in most Western countries. Mm -hmm. Where does that come from, do you think? Yeah. Historic legacy? What is that? Yeah, I mean, I think two things. So one is there's a pride in that emblematic leader. And so just to throw in a queen, right, and take the United Kingdom, (laughs) this similar in the sense of Mm -hmm. emblematic leader. And so I do think there's Mm -hmm. a sort of innate human desire to have that emblematic visionary leader and someone that you can look to in times of joy or sorrow. So that's one element of it. I do think, though, the other is, and we've seen that in the responses to COVID in some cases and, and other examples for sure, when you have a single leader with that much power, it is much easier to turn and change and do things as a country than in our system where consensus rules. And mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. consensus. I'm always going to be in for mm-hmm. consensus and I'll spend as much time as I need to build it, but it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. And so for Russian people are more amenable to this idea of getting something done. Mm-hmm. Is that a reasonable takeaway that's just for historic reasons? Or yeah, the I don't sort even of decisiveness know of like, we're going to go yeah. to this, we're going to protect our people and, you know, you can yeah. hurrah and, and go behind it. But there's certainly the, yeah. the emblematicness to, you know, that leader, which Putin certainly carries, I think, very effectively with both yeah. public and, you know, private manners. You know, along the same lines of Russian people, and leadership. So something Putin has emphasized certainly is the reputation of the country and hating to be seen as a second class citizen Mm -hmm. and not equal to the United States. That that seems to be one of his motivators. Mm -hmm. And would you say that's generalized in Russia that people care about the international standing as much as he does? Yes, I would actually. And I would go back to to the question you asked much earlier about the views that I was hearing at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union, that the greatest pain was sort of that pride, you know, the pride Mm. of Soviet Union, even if it wasn't running great, (laughs) you know, you were the Soviet Union. It's just an element of power that comes from that and pride that many struggled with as it became Russia. And so, you know, Putin himself has been very open about saying the greatest loss was the loss of that Soviet Union. And so trying to do whatever can be done to rebuild that sense of pride is paramount for many. I would say, though, many not at the sacrifice that he has asked of much of society and people. So it's not all for the pride and the union at the expense of all else. 
What is everyday life like in Russia today for the average person? Really hard. I mean, I do have some friends still there. And again, I would mm -hmm. caveat my answer with a friend in Moscow is a very different friend than in a distant part of the Far East. But it's hard because there have been partly our sanctions, well-intentioned, but that has really mm -hmm. crippled a lot of economic mm -hmm. exchange, ability to reach goods. COVID itself has been incredibly tough. I think we don't know, you know how hard that's been for some of the cities and people in Russia, information being not what it should be, perhaps. And that coupled with the sense of loss of your purpose and your pride is really hard. The economics are a whole nother conversation, right? You went from having a pretty stable life to wondering for those who are pensioners, mm -hmm. whether you'll receive your pension, whether you'll be able to put food on the mm -hmm. table. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that you might say I'd rather not answer, which is cool. Okay. But one is about cyber and one is about politics in the context of Putin. Mm. And since we talked about cyber already, I'll start with that. Why does it appear that he is comfortable either having these actors in Russia or maybe even, I don't know whether and what has come out that's public about how much control the Russian government has mm -hmm. over cyber criminals, cyber terrorism, mm -hmm. really in many ways. Is there a way just to get at the United States in the West? And, you know, when you don't have equal economic might, this is one way to do it. Is that what that game is about? And do we know for sure that it seems that way? But I haven't done the study. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen the study. So what do we know that you can share and why is it happening? Yeah. So to answer it at a high level, I would say to be determined, honestly, whether in fact Putin himself is condoning, allowing, mm -hmm. you know, choose your verb, these acts. I believe that there is an element of being happy to be blind to them for some time just to, you know, let it go. But I also think there's an element of us assuming, prescribing this all-knowing, all-powerful Putin, which, you know, I'm sure yeah. is not true. And so I think we probably think he knows more than he does. <laughs> so That's such an excellent point. And I'm falling into that trap as well, mm. even by the nature of this kind of two-part question about cyber and then politics that we'll talk about. Because there's one thing we do know from a lot of research in political science which is that most leaders are not nearly as powerful as we make them right. out to be. You know, I'm thinking about, for example, the Cuban Missile Crisis mm. and the classic study yeah. that was done. And there are different lenses to take. There's an organizational mm -hmm. lens. I mean, there's bureaucracy going on. Right. And those bureaucracies are real and people have power yeah, within yeah. those bureaucracies. So I think that's really good that you mentioned that and mm -hmm. brought that up. Certainly the press leads us to believe, and he's a dictator. So mm -hmm. all those things, you know, say, mm -hmm. well, of course, he, he knows everything. But even if he wants to know everything, he can't know everything. Right. Yeah. And back to the dynamism of that environment, I expect at some point, and maybe again, we've hit that, or at least an early mm -hmm. step of it, where there is a tipping point where he says, I didn't know enough, and this is problematic, and it's affecting other parts of my agenda as the leader of Russia this has to stop or be dialed back. And now we do need to dedicate our resources to understand and yeah. control it where that may not have happened before. And how about the thing so many people have talked about, the role of Putin and the Russian government in mm -hmm. supporting Trump to become mm -hmm. president. Yeah. I don't know what you could say about that, what you so, know about that that you can say, but I'm going to ask anyways. Yeah. So I have no information, nor would I share it if I did, about you know the specifics of any cooperation, choose your word, that may have happened between the two. What I will say is... It is not at all uncommon for some countries to be very clear about who they support and who they don't. And that is a power of elections that it's afforded to those neighboring or you know global countries to influence in some ways. And if there's a country that knows how to run influence operations, it is Russia and its predecessor, Soviet Union. So I absolutely believe that that's part of the grander strategy. And that's, in fact, you know known in some of our studies of the Russian strategy is to take that strategic, really 10, 20 year view and how can they undermine our confidence as citizens in our judicial systems, in our elections, in our law enforcement. So much of the activity we see in that crazy, mystic, malinformation space is absolutely attributable, I think, to Russia and other countries who are actively seeking active measures, being the Soviet word, to undermine us. I mean, it's an interesting, ingenious kind of warfare of mm -hmm. sorts, and it's been working. And it plays on our from, strengths, right? It yeah. plays on our openness. Yeah. We are particularly vulnerable to that. And the recriminations tend to be, well, they're all over, but they certainly are against Facebook and Twitter. And maybe there's no doubt something to be said about that. But we have an open economy, right. much more open than a lot of other places. And the Russian government has been accused also of poisoning some of their citizens, right. especially the ones that are outspoken. And the most recent example, the most famous maybe, is the opposition leader, right? Uh, right, Navalny. Navalny. Yeah. Yeah. 
and they were using advanced chemical agents. So it really kind of takes us full circle of some mm-hmm. of what we talked about earlier, what is available, Absolutely. what is not available. It feeds in, again, that mis- and disinformation chain, too, right, where by official laboratory diagnosis and very, you know, double testing, et cetera, a high level of confidence that we can attribute Mm -hmm. that poisoning to, you know, Russia. But again, the Russians have done a great job of raising questions about that, whether the Navalny case or use of chemical agent in Syria, the ability to put out opposing narratives that grab many people and cause right. that misinformation to really right. fend on itself yes. it's trouble. It is remarkable how seemingly there's nothing you could say. You're caught red-handed, but yet there are these opposing narratives. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking even of the scandal in the Olympic movement, mm-hmm. in Russia, actually, and how they were, they were they had systemized doping. Yeah. And that came out, and there's a lot of evidence for right. that. But they had all kinds of other reasons yeah. to kind of cast some doubt on that. It's a form of, I mean, communication is very powerful. It weapon. really is. Yeah. And the speed of communication now, when you add Mm -hmm. in again, back to technology, Mm -hmm. there's so Mm -hmm. much more speed at play that lets that become so much harder as a consumer of information to assess, you know, trust. What is that future of trust look like? It's tough. Can the U.S. government do anything about some of this freelancing where citizens or doesn't matter if it's a citizen or not, but they're being assassinated? There are other examples as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a can or a should is probably the key. Uh, Can we? Certainly. Should we? Mm -hmm. And if so, what does that should look Mm -hmm. like in a way that doesn't, Mm -hmm. again, impair the great things about our nation? That's the challenge, really. And it goes back again to our differences in systems, I think. There's a lot of great work, and not to bring in my current firm, Deloitte, but there's some great work being done by companies like Deloitte and others on that. Like, what can the government do from a pure Mm -hmm. technical point of view, like how can we just help the government or people assess, right? Mm -hmm. Like what if you had your washer and dryer in your house somewhere and there's that energy Mm -hmm. standard, right? You know how your washer and dryer rank against Mm -hmm. others. Could you get the same thing when you have an information source coming in that says, this is the gold standard, verified, validated, et cetera. Mm -hmm. This one we're not so sure about. And you at least have that lens to look through. That's a really interesting idea and actually an unbelievably complicated one because (laughs) your facts are not necessarily my facts and how do we figure that out? So China is a global rival, bigger than Russia in many ways. Are Russia and China allies or rivals? Yeah, if I could go back and do my next PhD or go forward and do my (laughs) next PhD, it might be on that. You know, fascinating dynamics over centuries, Mm -hmm. really, of that relationship. Mm And so I think the next stage of that relationship is going to be really interesting to watch, especially when you add environmental pressures, as we've been talking about, with global security pressures. So really interesting dynamic where you have a nation, China, that's incredibly resource deprived, looking at the forests and water, et cetera, of their neighbors and thinking about how to capitalize on that, where Russia in turn has many other opposing views. So there's a lot of really interesting dynamics there. But I think currently the best description would be In our U.S. terms, we see them as our great power competition, near-peer competitors. They see themselves, in turn, as very much focused on us, right? So that doesn't put them necessarily in a cooperative place, but it does Mm -hmm. in certain areas, and we need to be very sensitive to those. Does the concept of a superpower still hold in 2021? I don't think so. I really don't. And in fact, I would credit General Mattis, who I think first really pushed us towards that as Secretary of Defense, but this alliances, partnerships. So maybe a different answer to your question is there Mm. could be a superpower if it's an alliance and it's a body of partners. I don't think any one nation anymore can be a superpower without the partners and alliances that come with it. Yeah, that's kind of an ecosystem kind of point of view, which is taking over as a way of thinking about business as Mm -hmm. well. And because we are the closest to, or many might still say a superpower, sometimes there's an assumption that you don't have to do all that partnering. Mm -hmm. And I guess we went through a political cycle where we didn't do that, and now we're doing it again. I would think that because you have more to offer, because you're more powerful, you're the biggest kid on the block, mm-hmm. you're in a better position to create mm-hmm. these alliances, which, you know, in the U.S., this has always been the case when it came to war or Gulf War and other things like this. And I don't think that's been the case if I think about Russia mm-hmm. in, say, their invasion of Ukraine or Crimea. Mm-hmm. They've kind of gone their own way on that. So that does speak to the alliances. Is there, is, is there an answer to the Russian aggression to their satellite states or former satellite states or former republics? Crimea and Ukraine are the two. Yeah. And Georgia. 
are the ones you think of me. So I'll give you an answer that might be a surprise to you or maybe to your listeners. I believe we need to be talking more. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think we do not understand what Russia, and I mean that Mm -hmm. to be bigger than just Putin, but what does Russia really want? What really Mm -hmm. scares them? What is their, you know, security index? How do they define threats? Like, I think we've lost, certainly in the arms control and nuclear spaces and many of the most critical from a mutually assured destruction point of view, we've closed explicitly those channels for good purpose, but we've, as a result, lost a lot of the understanding. And I just think you can't find yourself to resolution if you don't understand whether it's an adversary or a partner, what their views are. Yeah, I mean, that's actually very insightful. It makes a lot of sense. You would think that we would be spending a lot of time trying to do that. Maybe we are, but mm-hmm. I think what you're saying is we don't have the same Yeah, I mean, we've used of- communication as a tool of influence, mm-hmm. which I understand, again, like we will stop our exchange. Like we used to, a great example, we used to have lab exchanges with national laboratory directors, so the directors huh. of Los Alamos yeah. and Livermore and, and their equivalents would exchange with us. We used ending that as a tool to say, hey, we're upset with your behavior much like we do sanctions, et cetera. But I don't think the American public realizes how much we ended that and exchange programs of educational students like I had when I was uh, in mm-hmm. college. As those right. end that body of exchange, I think really the absence of communication that comes with that is really painful. Yeah. Well, we've been going for just about an hour. I want to ask you something about culture and then maybe a final question about sure. advice. And the culture question is, it, it strikes me that you have the type of deep experience on dealing with different national cultures certainly Russia in particular, but also corporate cultures, because mm-hmm. you were in, you had your own firm, you were in a smaller firm, you were in a consulting sector, you're in a government sector, you're in a giant firm now. Mm-hmm. And the culture, both at a national level and at a corporate level, it's always different. You've had to kind of figure it out and navigate mm-hmm. through there. And so a lot of people, maybe to not quite as much, but to a lesser extent, they have to deal with that also. And I'm wondering whether you have any thoughts or suggestions or things that work for you in, number one, figuring out what's going on, really, when you're somewhere else, whether, again, company or country. And then how do you navigate through that to be able to accomplish the goals you want to accomplish? Yeah. So, I mean, again, with my team answer to you before, I love that question. There's nothing I think is more important than that adaptability that comes from adjusting Mm -hmm. to different cultures. So, you know, Mm -hmm. for example, as a hiring manager, I look for people who have this demonstration of agility in cultural, you know, sort of adaptation. So, To me, it goes back to what we were just talking about, communication. And I mean that in the true definition of the word, listening more than talking. I think for me, all of those cultural changes, whether in corporate or to U.S. Special Operations Command, where I had the opportunity to serve very different culture, even than other parts of the Department of Defense where I had served previously, is to step back, watch, listen through osmosis, pick up how things are done, and then reflect that back so that you can be Mm -hmm. an effective part of that team. But I think absent the listening and osmosis and truly observing, there are too many times where the cultural conflict can't be surmounted. Yeah, I think that's great advice. It's also something that I know has been a big challenge for people starting their careers on Zoom. Right. Because if you're not, yeah. if you're just looking at someone and you're constantly in, yeah. in meetings that way, it's really hard. It's really to hard. To be able to kind of build those relationships. And yes, you can demonstrate listening, but it's mm-hmm. different. It's very it different. Absolutely. Um, is. More studies yeah, to follow yeah. on that. <laughs> that's going to be continuing. Okay, last question for mm. you, Wendon. It's kind of my favorite advice question because it's advice to yourself. But advice to the 21-year-old version of Wendon Smith. If you can magically go back in time mm-hmm. and uh, lean over to whatever you were doing when you were 21 and say, if there's one thing you really want to know about in life, or there's one mistake you want to avoid, or there's one thing you want to do, or there's something you should really think about that maybe you're not thinking about at this time, what would be the advice to yourself at the age of 21? Yeah. So there's so many things that come to mind for me to choose one is hard. And I should have well, listened give, to other, give, other SIDCasts that I was ready for that question. I failed. <laughs> do whatever comes to mind. Stream of consciousness yeah, so always works. What will come to mind for me is, I'll say it is slow down. I think mm-hmm. I was so eager to learn, listen, take this action, save yeah. this lake, do mm-hmm. you know all the things that were on my, I want to accomplish or I want to mm-hmm. learn these things that I didn't slow down enough to appreciate some of the moments. And I think in those moments, I like to say like we as humans and back to the Zoom example, we learn and share best by stories. And yes. it's hard to grab those stories and really make them part of you unless you slow down a little bit and take that moment in. So I certainly have some mm-hmm. amazing moments and I'll remember them and cherish them, but I wish I had slowed down a little bit more in some of those moments when you're negotiating, you know, something on arms control or 
talking with one of those scientists in Uzbekistan to just slow down a tad and, Mm -hmm. you know, have the extra moment with them. It's just so powerful. And I didn't do enough of that when I was younger. I may not still now. (laughs) So it's good advice (laughs) now. It's actually really interesting because a version of that I've heard from a bunch of people. And, you know, when I'm talking to really successful career-oriented, achievement-oriented people, yeah, they move faster than almost anyone to Mm -hmm. get to where they're at today. But yet, even people like that, even people like you, and I'm going to say even for me, I think about the same type of thing. I think I mentioned earlier that someone that was on a earlier podcast, Adrian Johnson's his name, he was the one that was in East Germany when the wall fell. And I asked him a question, but what was it like, you know, with regular people? What did they say? How did they react? Mm-hmm. And he paused and he said, you know, I really didn't spend enough time talking to them. And I was too busy. You know, he's an entrepreneur, he was too yeah. busy doing so many other things. And he didn't slow down and he mm-hmm. regretted it, actually. Mm-hmm. So it's really great advice. Dr. Smith, thank you so much for joining me on the SIDCast and with our listeners. What a great conversation. I learned a lot. and It was really fun. Thank you. Thank you. And so it's a service, honestly, to have these conversations. And I think in our culture today, having the opportunity to stop and listen, even if you're getting your morning walk while you do it, it's a service. Yes. And so thank you. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.